Good morning, everybody. Have you guys been loving this Grow series that we've been into? And so I have really appreciated all that Joe has been teaching us. And to be honest with you, I was almost just going to tell him, Joe, keep going. You're doing a great job. I don't need to speak. Uh, but, uh, but I'm very fortunate to be able to come and, and talk to you this morning and, and be a part of this uh, series. Um, I actually, Joe asked me, you know, which, which week I wanted to do, and I picked fellowship, uh, the week that we're going to talk about how do we grow in fellowship. Uh, I picked this because it's a topic that I love. You know, I love to talk about relationships. I love to talk about interactions between people and, and you know, just all that that brings to our church. So if, if anything in this past year of COVID-19 has taught us, you know, taught us anything, it's that relationships are important. Isn't that uh, the truth? Um, we need community, and we need relationships. Now, I admit that, as well of, as some of you, me, myself, uh, we've had some varied <laughs> relationships, experiences, sometimes, with fellowship with, with brothers and sisters, with, with brothers and sisters in Christ, with church fellowship. We've had some very varied experiences. But, and sometimes relationships are, are great. They're, they're as good as my favorite dessert, cheesecake, right? Uh, and then sometimes they're a little bit harder to swallow. For me, that's like Brussels sprouts, you know? It's, it's, sorry, I apologize for those of you that like Brussels sprouts. They're growing on me, but they're just not one of my favorites <laughs> out there. You know, so sometimes relationships can be up and down, right? Kind of like a roller coaster. But I really appreciate the role fellowship plays in helping us to grow in our faith. We're going to show you the graphic again. Okay, so just like our, our photo for this series portrays a small seed growing into a great tree. Fellowship and relationships usually start pretty small, right? They start with a simple hello to somebody that you might maybe have met in church or, or maybe at a friend's house. Uh, it's hard to say where. But then they grow into something big and beautiful that you never really imagined in the first place. You know, think about how many of you have met your spouses, right? Okay. I met Satin for the first time at a football game. That was about 33 years ago. And then for the last 33 years, 26 years of my life, or 26 years of marriage, five kids and a daughter-in-law all started with a high. <laughs> That's all it started with. All of that came about because of a simple hello, right? Now, Joe started this series talking about soup, right? And talking about these various topics as if they are ingredients in making a soup. Now, good soup is all about the ingredients, right? The same is true for fellowship, right? There are certain ingredients that we want to put into this soup that will bring out the flavor and help us to grow. This morning, we're going to talk about the ingredients of fellowship, and we are going to, we're going to read a lot, I'm, I'm telling you, a lot of different scriptures, okay? Now, one of the dangers of talking about a particular topic, okay, is that as humans, a lot of times we, we like to use the scriptures 
to kind of defend our own point of view or beliefs on, on that topic, right? So as Christians, we want, to, we want God's Word to form our beliefs on that specific, specific topic. So would you pray with me real quick as I um, get into today's message? Because I want my words to be God's words and what God has to say to us this morning. So would you pray with me? Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for all that it has to teach us. And Lord, I just pray that you would help me to speak your words and that we would, we've said it so many times already this morning, that we would take your word and apply it to our lives and be able to, to live out what you have to teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, uh, I want to start this morning with 1 John uh, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And we're going we're gonna to come back to this at the end, but, but this is kind of forming our uh, topic this morning, okay? 1 John th- 1, or chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. That, which we, that with which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So where does Christian fellowship come from? John is telling us here that that with which we have seen and heard, okay? He's talking about Jesus. The the disciples were with Jesus. They saw him. They heard him. They had a relationship with him. They knew him personally, and then they proclaimed Jesus so that more people could share in this fellowship that they had, right? You see, Christian fellowship is is defined by what believers have in Jesus. As the people of God, we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus— And therefore, we are all united in our common life in him. Have you ever heard the term koinonia before? I'm sure many of you probably have. Koinonia means a sharing, a, a participation, or fellowship with Jesus and with other Christians. In other words, this fellowship or communion that we have with Jesus is meant to bring us into deeper communion with each other, right? Now, fellowship is a broad topic, and there is a ton of stuff that we could actually talk about this morning. And I think most of us understand why we need fellowship, right? Okay, if we look at Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, and let us consider how to stir up one another— to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need fellowship to stir one another up, right? For encouragement, for accountability, for wisdom, for support both physically, emotionally, and spiritually, right? And to stand, even to stand firm against Satan. Hebrews 3.13 tells us this. Encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you 
may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So we under, most of us can grasp why we need fellowship. That's, that's pretty uh, logical, right? But we don't always do well with the how. Thankfully, Jesus has given us a lot of scriptures and his example to help us understand how fellowship is supposed to work. And when we follow his word, it will bring us closer together in fellowship as a community. Again, there's so much that I could, I could talk about. We're only going to talk about a few items this morning, but within fellowship, again, there are some smaller ingredients that, that we want to kind of put in this soup, right? Uh, but did you know that some ingredients don't go well together? Okay. I just really recently found this out. I didn't, I didn't know this before. Okay. But I just found out that you're not supposed to eat cereal and orange juice together. Did you guys know that? Maybe some of you did, but I didn't know that. You know, and, and my wife would say you should never eat cereal, but we will uh, agree to disagree on that one. Um, but <laughs> the acids in orange juice, I guess, break down the enzymes that, that break down starches in the cereal, okay? So those enzymes aren't there to break down those starches. And then also, like acidic fruits and, and fruit juices and stuff, they actually can curdle milk, which I never really thought about it before. It actually turns it into like a heavy mucus-like substance. I know, gross, isn't it, right? Um, (laughs) But just like there are some food ingredients that don't go well together, there are some fellowship ingredients, too, that don't go together either, okay? Some ingredients will break down fellowship, like the acids in orange juice and, that we just mentioned, and some allow fellowship to nourish our community and help it to grow. So I'm going to introduce these ingredients as opposites of each other. Um, so let's talk about these ingredients available to put in the soup. And like I said, these are just a few. I, there's so many different ways that we could take this this morning, but these are the ones that I picked out for this morning. Number one, is distrust versus faith, okay? Number two is anger versus love. And number three is unforgiveness versus forgiveness, okay? Each of these affect our relationships, community, and fellowship that we have with each other and with God, right? So the first ingredient that we're going to talk about is distrust versus faith. So let's start with distrust. Have you ever been walking around the church in the church lobby or even here in the sanctuary and somebody you know walks by and doesn't say hi to you that morning or even acknowledge that you are there? Maybe it's even happened twice, two weeks in a row. And you start to begin to think and wonder, you know, are they mad at me? <laughs> Is something going on here? What's, what's happening? Before you jump to that conclusion, do you think they are truly mad? Or are they just occupied by other things and busy? If you begin to distrust the relationship and become suspicious, you might unintentionally be building a barrier between you. 
And how will you ever know unless you have a conversation with that person? Go to that person. Are you willing to possibly be a little bit uncomfortable in order to keep barriers from forming in these relationships? Why is it so hard for us to think the best of each other at times? I realize that part of the reason for this is our past experiences. Most people in their lifetime have been hurt by people they thought they could trust to the point where we become guarded, unwilling to take a risk. So I understand that sometimes we have difficulty trusting in human relationships. But you probably know the next question that I have to ask you. Do we distrust or do we have faith that Jesus has the power to heal these relationships if a barrier does exist? I'm not saying that by trusting Jesus that every broken relationship we have is going to be repaired. But I know from experience that he will bring peace if we trust in him for whatever results may come. You know, following this road and trusting Jesus is sometimes very difficult, but it can be very rewarding if we learn to trust Jesus and have faith in him and faith in one another. There was an example of a, of a group of boys that were going to this, this ropes course, and, and they come up to this ropes course, and they're doing the high ropes course that day, and they're both, they're all thinking to each other, man, I don't know if I really want to want to do this. You know, this looks like really high. And they were kind of a little, a little scared about going up into the, into the trees and that sort of thing. Because if any of you have ever seen those, they get really high. Well, there's this group behind them. It was a group of girls that came behind them. And the guys were thinking, well, you know what? Well, <laughs> we'll let them go first and let's see how they react to this thing. And the girls actually got into this, got into those trees and they started just jumping around and jumping off and, and, and just, they went through the course just really quick. No problems whatsoever. And the guys were amazed. And they started to think, you know, what is it that gives people the confidence to do these courses and jump without giving it a second thought? What is it? You see, they don't distrust that the ropes or the people on the other end of them and will catch them. They don't distrust that. They trust that they will catch them if they slip. They have faith in each other. And that's the difference. Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10 says, two are better than one because they have good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. This is one of the reasons why I love this church so much. I know that you are people that I can trust to point me to Jesus and his word. Where did, where did we say Christian fellowship begins? It begins with Jesus. We trust that Jesus sustains and restores fellowship. This is where faith comes in, our second ingredient, right? I will admit to you that sadly, 
I have broken relationships in my life. And even right now, even despite my desire to reconcile, it looks as if some of those relationships may not be reconciled here on earth. But I have not given up hope. And I still have faith that Jesus can restore these relationships. If you are a believer, you can have faith that Jesus can restore your relationships because of what he has done for us. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If God can restore a sinner like me so that so that I can have eternal life, I know he can store, restore broken relationships that we encounter in this life. In Romans 4, Paul is actually uh, recounting the faith of Abraham, right? Abraham believed in hope and faith that he would become the father of many nations regardless of his age or Sarah's barrenness, right? Right? Romans 4, verse 20 and 21 tells us this. No distrust made him waver, considering the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Do you have faith, despite the difficult relationships, that God can make things right? that God can lead and direct relationships, that God can bring fellowship where it is lacking. We need the faith of Abraham. And I understand that this is really difficult for some of you. You may have a long-standing broken relationship that seems beyond repair. But as your brother in Christ, I want to encourage you not to lose hope. There is still time, and this may even challenge us to have some hard conversations with each other, right? We should not be afraid of these conversations and have faith that God is working for our good. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. See, faith is an ingredient that, first of all, restores our fellowship with Jesus and can also restore our fellowship with other believers. The second ingredients that I want to talk about are anger versus love, okay? I want us to understand that anger or being offended by someone or something is a serious matter. Let's look at what scripture has to say about anger, and, and we're going to be flying through these, so uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of different scriptures here, okay? Starting at the beginning, right? Genesis 49.7 describes anger as fierce and cruel. Exodus 32.19 tells us that Moses' anger burned hot. It describes it like a fire that consumes, in Deuteronomy 7.4, it is associated with the words kindle and destroy. In Job 4.9, anger blasts, it tears, it pierces. In Psalms, it burns, it consumes, it smolders. 
Proverbs 29.11, a fool gives full vent to his spirit. Some translations use the word anger there. Gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Isaiah chapter 30 describes it as a fist ready to strike and also like flames, a cloudburst, thunderstorms, and hailstones. There are a lot of references to anger in Scripture and throughout the Bible, and the overwhelming majority of them relate to images and words just like we talked about in these passages and heard in these passages. I want us to take anger seriously. I want, us to, I want to challenge you this morning, and listen to me carefully, because I'm not saying that we are never to become angry, but that anger never motivates people to take action for right causes. But I am saying that we should do everything possible to not become angry. Listen to what Proverbs has to say, okay? I'm going to go through these quickly again. Proverbs 14, 29, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has, has a hasty temper exalts folly. Proverbs 15, 1, soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 15, 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Proverbs 16, 32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 29.22, a man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. Are we getting the picture here? As you can see, the Bible has a lot to say about anger. And again, the overwhelming majority of it tells us to try and stay away from it, to rid ourselves from becoming angry. We are, we are to ask the Lord for his help. We have to ask the Lord for his help in doing this, right? Because there's a lot of triggers around us. Have you ever heard somebody say, when you see something wrong, that should make you angry? I want you to really think about that for a moment. How many times do you see something as wrong throughout a day? For a lot of us, if we became angry every time we saw something that was wrong, we'd likely, likely be angry pretty much all the time. And to be honest, in context of relationships, it's easy to see lots of things that make us angry or that we take offense to, right? But we need to realize that we may only be seeing in part. We may not have the entire story. Or we may be adding our own harmful assumptions. The Bible, the Bible tells us to rid ourselves of anger. Ephesians 4.31 tells us, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Colossians 3.8, but now... You must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. All these scriptures are pretty clear. And some of you guys may be thinking to yourself, okay, David, well, what about righteous anger, right? 
I want you to understand that we need to be really careful when we use that term, righteous anger. There was only one person that ever lived that was truly righteous, and that was Jesus. Again, I'm not saying that anger doesn't sometimes motivate us to do the right thing and that we should ignore matters of justice. But if we are honest and we think about our motivations, I would guess that most of the time in our human anger, it's rooted in pride and self-righteousness. James 1, 19 through 20 says this, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The term righteous anger for us really kind of reverses the Proverbs that we read earlier, like Proverbs 29, 22, a man of wrath stirs up strife and one given to anger causes much transgression. It turns this idea of ridding ourselves of anger upside down, right? Consider it. Doesn't this term kind of mean that we should, be, uh, we should be rewarded and maybe even receive a pat on the back for becoming angry or being offended at something? It just sounds a little bit off. If we become comfortable being angry all the time, it will begin to destroy our relationships and our fellowship with others. All right, so here's another verse you might be thinking about, okay? Uh, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give opportunity to the devil. Now, we need to put this verse in context, okay? Is Paul, is Paul really telling us to get angry? If you look at the whole passage that this verse is in, Paul is describing putting on our new life in Christ. He is saying that, he's saying by this that, you know what, we're all human. We will have anger in our life at times, but do not sin. Don't let it consume you to the point that it gives Satan an opportunity to make things worse. I want to make one side note here, if, if you'll allow me. Um, I want to speak specifically to the married men in this room. I think we often think that it's a manly response to act angry at times toward others, toward certain things, and toward our wives and our children at times. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And we need to be gentle with our wives. It's not okay to shout at your wife or treat her harshly in anger. We need to follow God's example and show love to our spouse and seek forgiveness when we fail. Jesus gave himself up for us out of love in order for us to have fellowship with each other the way God intended, we need to love each other. The next ingredient, right? Jesus commands us 
to love one another. John 13, 34 through 35 says this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know what? We all have different personalities, right? (laughs) And perspectives, and there are those who we will naturally kind of gravitate towards. And there are those of us who sometimes, you know, we have one of those days that make us a little bit hard to love. (laughs) So how do we learn to love each other despite our differences. We follow Jesus' example, right? Okay, so let's look at some of Jesus' examples. The disciples are talking in Luke 9, 46 through 48, and an argument rises among them. An argument rose, arose among them as to which of them was the greatest, okay? Now notice Jesus' reaction, right? He didn't stop and say, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> Are you, is this really taking place? He, that wasn't his reaction, right? He didn't say that. Out of love, he tried to teach them what was right. Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. He taught them. Jesus continued his love in patience, right? Because even after this discussion that he just had with them, later on in in Luke chapter 22, he tells us that they had the same exact argument. Who is the greatest? It was right after the Passover meal. And he doesn't get upset, but he teaches them again. When Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, right, he asks the disciples to stay awake and pray, and they fall asleep on him. And he continues to ask them to stay awake. Why? That they may not fall into temptation. His focus was on them. I want you to learn. Or, you know, even though he was in anguish, even though he was in anguish, his focus was on others. Thomas. He shows love to Thomas that even though Thomas doubted him, he allowed him to touch his scars and his hands and his side. When Peter betrays Jesus for the third time, they exchange a look between each other. Do you think it was a glaring look of, I told you so? I don't think so. I think it was a look of love and compassion, one that said Jesus, or one from Jesus that said to Peter, Peter, I want you to trust me. Right? Jesus teaches us how to love. We follow Matthew seven twelve. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. We love by being compassionate, by being patient, caring, and hopeful 
that God has the power to restore relationships. We love by being like Jesus. Jesus shows us how to love. Again, Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are all sinners in need of grace and forgiveness, which brings us to our last ingredients that we will talk about today. Unforgiveness versus forgiveness. I think most of us are familiar with the story in Matthew 18 of the story of the, the unforgiving servant, right? Um, it's in verses 21 through 35, but basically to summarize it, you know, a king had a servant who owed him a, a lot of money, right? And when the servant couldn't pay, the king ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had. So the servant fell on his knees and pleaded with the king to have patience with him. And the king took pity on him and released him and forgave him the debt. But then that same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. The two amounts weren't even comparable, right? This was a, a much, much smaller amount. And he grabbed the servant and he choked him, telling him to pay what he owes. The servant pleaded with him, but refused and put the man in jail. The king ended up finding out what was going on and said to him, and this verse is important, Matthew in verse 33, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? There may be some of you here this morning that say, David, I really don't want to go down this road. You may be thinking, you don't understand what I've been through. And you're right. I can't imagine what some of you have been through in your lives. Can't even begin to imagine. And I'm not saying that you can do this on your own. But I do believe and have faith that if you allow Jesus into the process, he can bring joy and peace into all circumstances. Hebrews 12, 14, and 15 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. You know, bitterness is often the result of unforgiveness, and it can really cause trouble in our lives. It can also spill over into other relationships. God calls us to strive for peace with everyone, even our enemies, and we are to do it in holiness without giving in to our temptations and passions for revenge. A.W. Pink has a great quote. He says this, the best way to overcoming a bitter spirit to a brother who is offended is to be much in prayer for him. 
It's only by God's grace that we are able to extend grace to others who have hurt us. Grace is giving something to somebody who doesn't deserve it, right? This grace is sometimes found at the beginning of godly sorrow. And godly sorrow can lead to repentance. Now, I'm not trying to diminish what has happened in your life in any way. But when you hold on to unforgiveness, we have to be careful of our focus. A lot of times it's on the offense, right? Where did we say that fellowship begins? It begins with Jesus. If your focus is on God and his word, you begin to understand that Jesus can give us the strength that we need to find forgiveness. I want us to also understand that forgiveness does not mean that there are no longer any consequences. We are choosing to give somebody grace and to say that we will not hold their sin against them. But there still may be consequences to those sins. And it doesn't mean that the person who has sinned against us has our full trust. But we do, however, recognize that grace has been given freely to us. And we don't have any right to withhold it or withhold that grace from others. We read Ephesians 4.31, or, or we read Ephesians 4.31 earlier that tells us to get rid of anger, right? Well, verse 32 goes on to say to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another, and if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. If we are to understand how to forgive others, we need to understand how God has forgiven us. God graciously offers us forgiveness. It is because of his love that he offers it to us as a gift. It was a costly gift. It cost his only son. It meant that he would die on a cross to pay for each of our sins. And his gift only has to be received through faith. Received through faith and repentance when we and when we receive it, we are forgiven and we're declared righteous in his sight. Acts 16.31 tells us that if we believe in the Lord Jesus, we will be saved. We receive this gift by trusting in Jesus to save us and he has promised us eternal fellowship with him. I want to close by sharing with you a, a, a quick story. And at this point, I'll, I'll actually invite the worship team to come up and they can, they can start playing. In a book called The Grace of Giving, Stephen Olford tells of a Baptist pastor, okay? The Baptist pastor lived during the American Revolution 
whose name was Peter Miller. And he actually lived in Ephrata, Pennsylvania. Okay? He enjoyed the friendship of George Washington. In Ephrata also lived a man called Michael Whitman. All right? Now, Michael was an evil-minded sort who did all he could to oppose and humiliate this pastor. So one day, Michael Whitman was actually arrested for treason and sentenced to die. So Peter Miller, this pastor, traveled 70 miles on foot to Philadelphia to plead for the life of this traitor. No, Peter, said General Washington. I cannot grant you the life of your friend. (laughs) My friend, (laughs) said the old preacher. He's the bitterest enemy I ever had. What? cried Washington. You walk 70 miles to save the life of an enemy? (laughs) That puts the matter in a different light. I'll grant you your pardon. And he did. Peter Miller took Michael Whitman back home to Ephrata. No longer an enemy, but a friend. Because of our sin, we were all once considered enemies of Jesus. But by God's grace, he provided a way through faith in his son Jesus that we might be forgiven and considered his friend. Have you put your faith in Jesus? Do you have fellowship with him? I want to close by reading the verse that we started with. And then I would like to pray that God would help us to become a community of faith, a community of love, and a community of forgiveness. 1 John 1, 3-4 That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let us pray. Father, we have heard your word this morning, and and some of these words are tough to hear. But we ask, Lord, that you would help us to hear them and that we would apply them and that we would become a community of faith, of love, and forgiveness because of what you have shown us, because of your example, Lord. We are so thankful that you consider us your friend. We are so thankful that you paid for our sins so that we may have eternal fellowship with you. So Lord, I ask if there are people here this morning that may not be in this fellowship with you, that they would come to know you, that they would talk to somebody, that they would pray with somebody, 
to understand this fellowship, this Christian fellowship, this koinonia, this, this church fellowship that begins with you. I pray, Father, that our relationship with you would spill out and pour over this church into a relationship with others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.